So I'll begin and end today with a question. How important is it for you to know the future? How important do you think it is that you could know that which is in front of us and respond accordingly? Today we're going to go back to the Old Testament to look for something that a lot of people don't really think about in the Old Testament, the spirit war. Now I've talked, uh, I did five sessions, how to survive the spirit war, and I thought it would be good to go back and explain something today. I know some of you, maybe you don't understand what this crazy picture is here, but Daniel has this dream about, um, actually Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, Daniel interprets it. This represents all the kingdoms of men that will one day be overcome because something's going to come out of the clouds. It'll hit the feet of iron and clay and crush all the Gentile kingdoms of the world. And a new kingdom will come. Now what happens in that scene is there's a description that there's a spiritual war that will take place before that rock comes out of the mountain. The Apostle John, he says this. He says that the spirit of Antichrist is at work on the earth. But you know, when you go in the Old Testament, you don't see Antichrist, and you don't see Antichrist because the Christ had not come yet. But there was still a spiritual war. There was still a battle. So let's begin today to understand this scene. Let's begin with the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, the throne of God on the earth. Do you, do you understand, and maybe that's a good place to start, do you understand that when I talk about Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., that was God's throne on the earth. He, he, he dwelt behind the veil in that temple. His presence was there. So in 586 B.C., something happened that transformed planet earth. The Jewish people lost control of the land. It was a covenant. He gave them that land, and they, they lost control of the land, and they lost the kingdom. They lost the land. They lost the kingdom. Who are they losing it to? The Gentile kingdoms of men. The Jewish people are going to lose the kingdom and lose the land to a bunch of successive Gentile kingdoms. It's important that you understand that. The land that the Jewish people had occupied and controlled, uh, at least to some point since the time of Joshua, when they crossed over the Jordan River uh, across from Jericho. There are some 800 years between Joshua, uh, he came right after Moses, and the fall of Jerusalem in 586. 800 years. 800 years in the promised land, Joshua to Jerusalem's fall. 800 years. Let's get a scale. Um, our nation's 247 years old. So that's three of us. They were in the promised land. It began with a tabernacle in the promised land. That's where it began. Uh, the presence of God came and, and lived behind the curtain, behind the veil in the, in the tabernacle. Um, but eventually, during the reign of King Solomon, the glory of God came and, and, and dwelt behind the veil of the Jerusalem temple. Solomon's temple was completed around a thousand years before Christ, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., 418 years later, in what today I will call the Great Spirit War of the Old Testament. The prophet Ezekiel describes a time when the glory of God had departed from the Jerusalem temple. Uh, it's a scene that, quite frankly, my mind has a hard time comprehending. Do you really think King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon could have came and burned down the Jerusalem temple, destroyed if God's presence was in that temple? He left. Is anybody listening? He left. He departed. And when he departed... Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed everything. Many of the Jews were killed in the siege. Some were taken slaves to Babylon. The kingdom of Judah was lost to the Gentile kingdoms of men. It's a spirit war. The kingdom of Israel and Judah in the promised land was now ruled by the Gentile kingdoms of men that, listen, that operate totally under the authority of false gods. 
So when I say the kingdom and the land were lost, it was lost to pagans, to those who operate under the false gods. The prophet Jeremiah had been told by God that the Jewish captivity and their exile would only last 70 years. He told them in advance, it's going to all be gone and you're all going to be scattered, those of you who survive, but it'll only last 70 years. One year of bondage for every year that they didn't allow the land to have a Sabbath rest. If you were in my roots class this past Wednesday night, that was the topic, the Sabbath rest. The land was supposed to have a Sabbath rest every seven years. It was God's law. They did not obey God's law. And now 70 years of exile will come. The Jews had refused to obey the God's Sabbath rest. So 70 years, they would be out of the land and the land itself would lay uh, without any, anybody farming it or harvesting it. So God gave the land the very thing the Jews refused to give it. A 70 years of Sabbath rest. Not just 70 years of rest, but 70 years, and this is where I'm going today. 70 years of rest under the reign of foreign Gentile kings in a spiritual war. So let's go to Jeremiah 25, 11. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. This is the promised land. Do you understand? This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon. They're going to lose the land and they're going to lose the kingdom. And they're going to serve the Babylon king for 70 years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins says the Lord, and I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. God would allow the Babylonians, and let's call them Gentiles, and if you don't know what Gentiles means, it simply is non-Jewish people, so we're Gentiles. God was going to allow the Babylonians to rule over the Jews, but not forever. They, Babylon, would eventually, at the end of 70 years, face their own judgment. But God did not abandon the Jewish people in the midst of this spirit war. This is where one of the most read Jeremiah scriptures, many of you have memorized it. I've noticed when I go to college or high school graduations, this is one of those verses that people sing out, single out as their theme verse because it's got such an optimistic future perspective. Jeremiah 20 verse 10, 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now, what's happening here? Jerusalem's fallen. The people have been taken as slaves to Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. How powerful is that? declares the Lord, and, and will bring you back from captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. In other words, I'm going to come and get you and bring you back after 70 years. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. God said, I have a plan for you, Jewish people. I have a hope and I have a future. That is a short and a long-term promise of God in the spirit war. The short term was at the end of 70 years, I will bring you back. The long term, you and I are still waiting to see. Some of it we have seen in our generation. Some is still yet to come. The promised land. The promised land found its rest for 70 years while the Jewish people lived in Babylon. All of this is during the prophet Daniel. Daniel was one of the Jewish exiles that was led away by King Nebuchadnezzar to live in Babylon. We would know that as modern-day Iraq. Daniel lived under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, 
And then he lived under the reign of King Belshazzar, the king that experienced the handwriting on the wall event. I'll explain that in a moment. King Belshazzar, the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, makes a terrible decision while Daniel is living in Babylon. He makes a terrible decision in his arrogance and his drunkenness. A decision that will be his end and the end of the Gentile kingdom. It will be the end of the first Gentile kingdom, which Daniel interprets as the head of gold, Babylon. Daniel 5 verse 3. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Now it's been a long time since Nebuchadnezzar um, sacked Jerusalem. But they've stored these golden goblets that were used, supposed to be used only in the temple worship, only in the presence of God, and only by the priesthood. And now they're going to have a drunken party in Babylon and bring out the golden goblets. Bad idea. So they brought these gold cups from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king, Belshazzar, and his nobles... His wives, his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Bad idea. And suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. Notice it's near the lampstand. He wanted them to see his hand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright, and yes, you would too. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. King Belshazzar, if you read the rest of the story, he summons Daniel to interpret the handwriting on the wall in the same way that Daniel interpreted the dream of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, which is this statue many years before. Let's go down to verse 25. Here comes Daniel. This is the message that was written, that finger on the wall. While you drank from those goblets you should not have drank from. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what the word means, words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. The head of gold, the Babylonian empire, is about to close. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Not to God's standard. Verse 28, Parson means divided. Your kingdom, that's Babylon, the head of gold. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in a purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That very night, the Babylonian empire was replaced by the Medo-Persian empire, the chest of silver in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The spirit war has just lost its first Gentile kingdom. Babylon has fallen. The head of gold has fallen. And some of you who know the scriptures will know this. In the book of Revelation, you will hear that again. Babylon has fallen. That night, Babylon fell. The second Gentile king, kingdom took its place. His name is Darius. Darius is a Mede, M-E-D-E, from the, what we would now call the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the same Darius that will promote Daniel to the highest position in this new kingdom. Now you notice that if you know the scriptures, Daniel was already at a high ranking in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, right? 
And then in Belshazzar, when he interprets the handwriting on the wall, he's promoted to the third highest position in the land, even though that didn't last very long because that night he died. But here comes Darius, the second kingdom, the chest and arms of silver. And this is the same Darius that was tricked into putting Daniel into the lion's den. But I'll come back to that shortly. So let's summarize the, the events of the spirit war so I can reveal something very important today. We have the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. That's how it all begins. And it is on fire as God has departed from the temple. We have something now changing everything in the whole world. They're going to lose the land and they're going to lose the kingdom. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, his inheritance is going to lose the land and they're going to lose the kingdom. So here comes Babylon. We have the Gentile king Nebuchadnezzar now in charge of everything. But there's an interesting twist to the story. He will have a Jewish man at his side during his reign, Daniel. Not just Daniel, but in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, it's Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Babylonians who follow false gods don't like the fact that the Jews are in positions of authority in the kingdom. In fact, if you study the whole problem with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is that the Babylonians did not like these Jews being in their administration, in their government, in positions of authority. King Nebuchadnezzar, in the story, will be replaced by King Belshazzar, who will be replaced by the king of Persia, Darius. They're moving down the chain of this statue. To understand this spirit war, we need to go back to the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interpreted. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar reveals the spirit war I want to talk about today. Let's go to Daniel 2.31. Daniel is explaining it to the king, the first king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. Daniel revealed that detail to King Nebuchadnezzar and told King Nebuchadnezzar this. Listen, this is important. You, O king, are the head of gold. You. Now, God also revealed through Daniel that the head of gold would one day be replaced. You will one day be replaced by an inferior kingdom that will be the chest and arms of silver. The Babylonian kingdom would be replaced by the Medes and the Persians, bringing in the, the Persian empire under King Darius and eventually Cyrus. And this is very important. These kingdoms, the head of gold and the chest of silver, and the, the, the belly and thigh of bronze, the feet of iron and clay, they are all Gentile kingdoms. It is the title of today's message. I want you to understand that all of this symbolizes something that happened in Jerusalem. When Jerusalem fell, they lost the kingdom and they lost the land. And they didn't just lose it. They lost it to a future generation of Gentile kingdoms that would take possession of the kingdom and the land. Gentile kingdoms that would temporarily occupy the promised land and they would temporarily rule over the Jewish people who remained in the promised land. They lost the kingdom and they lost the land. The handwriting on the wall event defiling the Jewish temple articles was the end of Babylon. It was the end of the head of gold. That night, Belshazzar died. And that night, King Darius, 
the chest and arms of silver came to parable, to power, excuse me. And who ends up being number two in King Darius's empire? You can't make this up. Who ends up being number two? Daniel, a Jew. So in the head of gold and the chest of silver, both of these kingdoms end up with a Jewish guy standing beside the kingdom's ruler. Interesting, isn't it? Daniel, a Jew, is the number two man in both these Gentile kingdoms. And how do you think that's going to go over in the spirit war? Here's where we're going. If there is a battle that's raging in the heavenly realms, it didn't begin in the New Testament. It began in the beginning, even before the Garden of Eden. So in the Old Testament, how's this going to go over when now the Jerusalem has fallen, God has departed from the temple, and now you have these Gentile pagan kingdoms in Jerusalem reigning over the Jewish people, and here stands Daniel next to the top guy in both kingdoms. How's that going to go over? Remember, Babylon and the Persians worship false gods, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Certainly not the God of Daniel. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, the first Gentile kingdom revealed by God to Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar, let's back up. Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden statue. And he demands that all the people of the earth bow down to him or die in a blazing furnace. Now, this is after Daniel has told him, you are the head of gold. Now, he obviously has become puffed up in his own declaration that you are the head of gold. So he makes his own statue. He makes a giant statue and he orders, he makes a law. Listen, this is really important. He makes a law to all the people of Babylon that to, you must obey the law. And the law says this, whenever you hear this certain kind of music, you must fall down and worship the golden statue, this big statue that's been erected to symbolize King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Do you see a spiritual war? Hang with me. The Hebrews, the Jews have a problem with bowing down to statues. It's one of those Ten Commandment things. They have a problem with bowing down to statues. They're not supposed to do it, right? So then you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Old Testament spirit war begins to take shape. Daniel 3 verse 12. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who you have put in charge. They've come to power too. You have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They, they pay no attention to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Now understand that at this time, Daniel is number two man in Babylon. And these three Hebrews are also rulers inside the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the spirit war must try to stop them and, in, and stop their influence in the political environment of Babylon. Let's get rid of these Jewish guys. King Nebuchadnezzar, when he finds out that these Jewish men refuse to obey the law, this is important. They refuse to obey the, the law of Babylon. It's a law. When he finds out they refused to obey the law, he's filled with rage. But he gives them one more chance to bow down to this false god in the spirit war. But they refuse to go along with the godlessness of this Gentile kingdom called Babylon. Let's go to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able, is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. They're respectful, aren't they? But even if he doesn't, even if our God doesn't rescue us from the furnace, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. 
You know the story. You know how this ends. And here's where today will be different. Most people want to focus on the supernatural escape from the fiery furnace. I want to keep my focus today on the spiritual war that's raging all around them. There's a fourth person in the fire. Go down to verse 23. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego securely tied fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. They replied, look, look. Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Anybody noticed his attitude has changed lately? Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. In the end, King Nebuchadnezzar does what? He praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and promotes them to an even higher position in the Gentile kingdom. Listen, listen carefully. What brought Nebuchadnezzar to the place of praising the God of the Jewish people? They wouldn't go along. Refusing to go along and worship pagan gods brought truth to Nebuchadnezzar. To Babylon. In the end, the God of Abraham and Daniel is revealed to the Gentile kingdom by three Jewish men who would not go along and bow down to false gods. Verse 28, then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Would anybody come to this place of praise God, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Would any of, any of these people come to this conclusion had these three men gone alone? No. Only by their refusing to go along. They broke the law of Babylon. They are respectful to the king. Daniel is respectful to the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are respectful to the king until the king tells them to break God's laws. Then we can't do it anymore. Nope, can't do it. Even if we die, we can't do it. Verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die. Anybody listening today? They were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted. What? You want a promotion? Here you go. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the even higher positions in the province of Babylon. How do you think that made the people who already hated the Jews feel? They even got better jobs. That's the Babylon, that's the Babylon Gentile kingdom. That's the head of gold. Now, for the chest of and arms of silver. Gentile kingdom. The Persians under King Darius. Now, I want you to notice something that happens again in the Old Testament spirit war. The followers of the false gods. Now, now we're changing kingdoms. We're moving from Babylon to Persia. Even though we've changed kingdoms, we've changed leaders, we've changed kings, the followers of the false gods will not tolerate Anyone in their kingdom who worships the one true God. And I need to say something here. That has not changed in the spirit war. Let me say it again. 
The followers of the false gods will not tolerate the worship of the one true God. That's what happened in the time of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. That's going to happen in the second kingdom of Persia. God has placed Daniel as the number two man under King Darius in this second Gentile kingdom called Persia. Let's go to Daniel 6.3. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king, Darius of Persia, made plans to place him over the entire empire. How will this decision go over in the spirit war? You're going to have a Jew standing next to Darius, the king of Persia, the entire empire. By the way, understand, when I talk about Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome in this statue, that was the world power. They ruled the world. They didn't just rule an area. They ruled the world. So here's Daniel, now number two in world power. How's that going to go over in the spirit war? Will the followers of the false gods tolerate a Jew who serves only one God? Verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers. This is in Persia. The other guys in the political environment began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Find that in a politician somewhere. <laughs> so they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing this Jew, let's be honest, that's the, it's not Daniel, he's Jewish. He only worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't like that. There's a spiritual war. Our only chance finding ground for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion, his faith. The spirit war. They must find a way to get rid of this Jew named Daniel. So they trick, listen, they trick King Darius into making a law that would trap Daniel. I want all Christians today, right now, let's come to today, and I want you to think about this right now for a moment. In the spirit war, the government power that worshiped a false god had to make a law. They made a law to try to capture or put to death Anyone who wouldn't go along with their worship of false gods. So with, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the law was you have to fall down and worship the statue. But we can't because we're Jewish. In this case, they're going to do it again because of another Jew named Daniel. They're going to make a law. Listen, does that have any relevance in, in America today? Does that have any relevance for us today? Will, will the government, who has now turned to worship false gods, try to make a law to make Christians, those who won't go along with them, be the enemy? That's what's happening in both of these scenes. Let me keep going. Daniel 6, 7. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and government. This is the whole government of the Persian Empire. We're all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays, what? Any person that prays to anyone divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den. Did you know that's the charge against Daniel? Do you see the spirit war in the second Gentile kingdom, the chest of silver? We must get rid of this Jew. Can you see it in the first Babylonian kingdom? There's a statue that requires you to bow down. You know the story. Daniel refuses to go along with this decree with this law, and he's thrown into the lion's den. By, by the way, what does Daniel do that's so horrible? He kneels down in his room privately toward Jerusalem, 
and prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wow, that's terrible. That'll bring down the government, won't it? And you know, when I'm writing this sermon, I couldn't help but think just a couple of years ago, just a couple of years ago, any church that held services in public, our governor sent state police to the parking lot to write down the license plates. Oh, that'll bring down the government, won't it? Is it possible that any people would actually charge Christians, charge somebody for not following or worshiping their God? Interesting. King Darius has great respect for Daniel. He tries to save him. He really does. But the law is the law. Notice how King Darius describes Daniel and his God. Daniel 6.16. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The charges were clear. Daniel prayed. You're not supposed to pray. So Daniel prayed. The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. But the law is the law. And the law says you have to go into the lion's den. Now, most people focus on the supernatural protection of Daniel in the lion's den that night. And you know what? I'm, I'm excited about that. But I want to focus more on which God remains in power after the scene is over. As Darius runs to the lion's den the next morning, we'll pick up verse 20. When he, the king of the Persian Empire, when he got there to the lion's den, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you. Your Majesty, you see how respectful Daniel is to the government? You see how respectful Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were to the government? As long as the government didn't ask them to violate their conscience regarding their God. I have not wronged you, Your Majesty. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. So let me ask you again, do you see a spiritual war? Do you understand there are casualties in the spirit war? Go down to verse 24. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. Of what? Having the audacity of prayer. He had them thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and along with their children. Ooh. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the whole world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. Would this have happened if Daniel went along? No. The decree is going out to reveal the God of Daniel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the entire world because Daniel didn't go along. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't go along. They broke the law. They were respectful until... The government power asked them to violate their conscience toward God. Then they said, no. Now, verse 26, I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the next king of Persia. So Darius is replaced by Cyrus in the second Gentile kingdom of Persia. Now we're in this chest of silver and the arms of silver. Do you know what happens when Cyrus comes to power? 
It almost makes me smile till my jaw hurts. You know what happens when Cyrus comes to power? Remember, it's been more than 50 years since Jerusalem fell and the first Gentile kingdom has taken over. Second Chronicles 36. In the first year, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred, God stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his entire kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's the chest of silver. He, God, has appointed me, Cyrus, to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you, these are the captives that have been captive in Babylon. Any of you who are the Lord's people, Jewish, may go there for this task. And may the Lord, your God, be with you. Why in the world would the king of Persia build a temple to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Jerusalem? Do you not know? He is the everlasting God. I got one more scene. One more scene from the second Gentile kingdom of Persia in the spirit war. The events of Esther. They occurred around 486 BC. That's about 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon and the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. Many of the Jews... Under King Cyrus's rule, they're going to build, rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Many of the Jews return to Jerusalem after the 70-year exile. But here's the story of Esther. Are you ready? Many did not go back. Many of them stayed wherever they were. They stayed in Persia. They stayed in, in Babylon. Esther and her uncle Mordecai live in Susa under the reign of the Gentile Persian king named Xerxes. He in this story is the chest of silver. Esther and Mordecai, guess what? They are Jews living under the reign of a Gentile Persian king. Mordecai has instructed Esther in the story to keep her Jewish heritage a secret. Do not tell them you are Jewish. Why? Because Mordecai knows about the spirit war. He knows that if they find out you're Jewish, they're not going to like you. They're not going to accept you. And guess what happens? The secret Jewish girl Esther becomes the queen of Persia and marries King Xerxes. This time it's not Daniel as number two, but Queen Esther in the beginning and eventually Mordecai will assume a role in Persia, much like Daniel. And this is the common question inside of all three of today's stories. Are you ready? Will those who worship the false gods of Persia tolerate Jews being in positions of power around them? Do you think that question has any relevance today? Well, let me ask it again. Will those who worship the false gods of Persia tolerate Jews being in positions of power around them. We've dealt with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and now there's Esther and Mordecai. Will the reigning Gentile government make a law against the Jews and try to destroy them? In all of these cases, there was the governing power making a law to try to trap those who worship the one true God. It was actually this story of Mordecai that prompted me to write this message today. Esther 3 verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. So in the Persian empire, Xerxes is going to promote a really bad guy. His name is Haman. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman, 
to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. The king had made a law that everybody has to bow down to his number two, Haman. You with me? The king, Xerxes, made a law. Everybody, you have to bow down to Haman. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Haman, the number two, is an Agagite. Those are the people who came from Amalek, the spiritual arch enemies of Israel, the descendants of Esau, who's the brother of Jacob. Do you see a spirit war? Because I hear this word, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. I don't have time to get into that right now. Haman finds himself as number two under King Xerxes, and everybody, listen carefully, is required by law to bow down to Haman. Does this sound familiar in the spirit war? You must bow down to the gold statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Do not pray. These are government laws trying to restrict anybody who is a follower of God from expressing their faith. Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow down to Haman. He refuses to go along with the king's law. He's a lawbreaker. He's respectful to the king until the king asks him to do something that violates his conscience toward God. Haman's response to the Jew Mordecai reveals more about the spirit war than any of the earlier scenes with Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? This one goes much, much, much deeper and reveals the reason I wrote today's sermon. Verse 3. Then the palace officials at the king's gate ask Mordecai. They ask the Jew. Who's respected, by the way? Mordecai's respected. Why are you disobeying the king's command? You know what they're really saying? Why don't you just go along because you're going to get in trouble. Why don't you just go along? Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still Mordecai the Jew, he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Do you see it? Here it comes. They know he's Jewish. And they know that these Jewish people aren't really go along kind of people. Will, more, will Haman tolerate Mordecai? No! He will not. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. He's Jewish. So he decided, it's not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. No, nope, that won't satisfy my bloodthirst. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes, the Persian kingdom. Do you see the spirit war now? False God worshipers will never tolerate those who worship the one true God. Do you think that's different today? Church, wake up. False God worshipers will never tolerate those who worship the one true God. Never. It won't be enough to get rid of one Jew named Mordecai. All the Jews must die. Haman puts together his diabolical plan to exterminate all the Jews in Persia, having no idea, no idea that Esther is Jewish and she's the queen of Persia. Let me tell you, if he'd known that, he would have shut his mouth and went somewhere else. Most people... Focus on how God used Queen Esther to bring deliverance to her people. I want to keep my focus on the spirit war today. Mordecai knew something that all of us need to understand today. Are you ready? We are here for such a time as this. This is our time. I can tell you this story about these heroic people who stood against the government to bring honor to the, the, the true God. But that means nothing unless you understand that this is your time. This is our day. We are here for such a time as this. The spirit war is real. And those who try to thwart the plan of God and the children of God will face the judgment of God. At the risk of her own life, Queen Esther eventually reveals her Jewish identity to the king. 
And the king orders that Haman be executed. Esther 7.10. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. Haman was executed. And Mordecai was promoted to number two in the land. Now, I have shown you from here to here. Do you see something consistent? It's the same in every one of these stories. The government that follows the false god tries to thwart the work of God among his people, and they end up being the ones who lose. The spirit war. Do you know how this is going to end? One last scene from Esther, verse 7. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I have given Esther the property of Haman. By the way, he was extremely rich. I, the king, the Persian king, have given Esther the property of Haman. And he has been impaled on a pole because he tried to destroy the Jews. Judgment day came and the wealth of the wicked was transferred to the children of God. I need to say that again. On judgment day, the wealth of the wicked was transferred to the children of God. It's going to happen again one day. So here's my closing. I want you to pay close attention. Are those, those are just two of the Gentile kingdoms of men. The head of gold, the chest and arms of silver. The Gentile kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great, they came next right here. And they fail. They are the belly and the thighs of bronze. One example from that kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek. He also, like Haman, tried to destroy the Jews. If you study the story of Hanukkah, uh, you'll see Antiochus Epiphanes. He tried to destroy all the Jewish people, and he failed. And followed by him is the legs of, uh, or um, feet of iron and clay, the Roman Empire. And guess what happens in the Roman Empire? In the time of the Roman Empire, you, you know the story. King Herod tries to what? He tries to stop the birth of a Jewish king by killing all the Jewish boys in Bethlehem. And later, after the time of Jesus, Emperor Titus burned down Jerusalem and the temple again. Just like Babylon did, it's been rebuilt by King Herod. But in 70 AD, this Roman Empire, this Roman Empire, the final kingdom, Gentile kingdom, burns down the Jerusalem temple and expels. It's called the Diaspora, all the Jews around the world. What about since then? What about modern day? Since then, Hitler tried to kill them all in World War II. Is anybody paying attention? He tried to kill them all in World War II. He did kill six million of them. Do you see the spirit war? And then something happened. And it's the reason I preached today's message. What happened that started all of this storyline today? The head of gold, the Gentile kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, took over the land and took over the kingdom. But what happens at the end of this story? In 1948, against all odds, the nation of Israel was reborn. That's how this story starts. In 1948, shortly before I was born, the nation of Israel was reborn. Can a nation be born in a day? And today, the Jewish population in Israel is nearing 7 million in 1967, and yes, I was alive in 1967, against all odds, Israel took possession of the city of Jerusalem. Again, after some 2,000 years. Do you, do you understand? If this story begins with them losing Jerusalem, would it be really big if they got Jerusalem back after 2,000 years, after all of this story takes place? Is the time of the Gentiles 
and the Gentile kingdoms coming to an end. I'm asking, is the time of the Gentiles and the Gentile kingdoms of men coming to an end? Do you see it? The spirit war? Which side do you want to be on on the last day? And did I mention that Jesus is Jewish? He is the king of the Jews. And yes, they even tried to kill him, but they never imagined that he would rise from the dead. It all began with a dream that the Jew, Daniel, interpreted for the Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar. That dream tells us today how all of this is going to end. And there are people in this room that you have eyes to see and you have ears to hear. And you have a heart that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And you know something's coming. You don't know the day. You don't know the hours. You know something's coming. So I'm going to go. This, this statue was a dream of the first Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel interpreted. Here's the interpretation. Let's go back to the beginning. Daniel 2.44. During the reign of those kings. Now, now listen, you need to understand what that means. During the reign of those kings, during the reign of the Gentile kings, while the Gentiles are still reigning on the earth, right? Romans, we're in the Roman Empire right now. The Romans, still, the, the Western culture still rules the world. During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In that dream, all those kingdoms were destroyed one at a time. But there's a time coming during the reign of those kings. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom, a singular kingdom that will never be destroyed. It'll never be conquered. It, this new kingdom out of heaven, will crush all the kingdoms, uh, all the Gentile kingdoms. It will crush them into nothingness. And it, this new kingdom, will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain. Though not by human hands that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, gold. The God, the great God was showing the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will happen in the future. The dream is true. The meaning is certain. Now put the picture up again. There's something coming out of the clouds in this scene. And it hits the feet of iron and clay. And all the kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms that ever ruled on the earth are going to be blown away. And a new king and a new kingdom is coming. A rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. He's coming. I don't have any problem saying that today. He's coming. I don't know when. His name is Jesus. The same prophet Daniel says he will come in the clouds. He's called the Son of Man coming in the clouds. By the way, that's next Sunday's sermon. Daniel 7, 13. Here we go. As my vision, this is Daniel. As my vision continued that night. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's vision. This is Daniel's vision. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one. This is Jesus the Son approaching God the Father. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Jesus was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The rock is coming. Jesus is coming. He is unstoppable. And I'm telling you today, you will only hurt yourself if you resist. Last Sunday I said, today I'll say it again, something's coming. If you have the Holy Spirit, something inside of you tells you something's coming, something's coming. I don't know what it'll look like, 
what happens before or in the middle. Uh, something's coming. And here's my warning to the church today. You can do what you want to with it, but I am compelled to tell you. They will again make laws requiring believers to bow down to their false gods. And you'll have to decide who you are in this story. They will again. Did you notice consistently throughout every one of these spirit wars, the government in power that worships the false god made laws that believers had to go along or face death or persecution. They will do it again. And some of you will fall. And somebody told you in advance. And some of you will fall. If you study the book of Revelation, it is clear that during the tribulation it will happen. In Revelation 13, what does it tell you? That the false Christ, the Antichrist, they will build a statue. Interesting, isn't it? They will build a statue in Jerusalem. And you'll have to bow to that statue or you'll be executed. And that, after, you know, after that's when the mark comes. If you read it, you'll see that it's after that that the mark of the beast comes. So they're, in the tribulation, we know that literally they're going to build a statue. The false prophet will build a statue to the Antichrist. And people will have to bow and give their allegiance to that Antichrist statue or you'll die. They'll execute you on the spot. And then you get the mark. You can't buy or sell without the mark. So if that's the tribulation, and I've just explained to you the entire Old Testament where the same thing was happening on a different scale, what about in the church age? Would they make laws where you had to decide? I told you earlier that it hadn't been just a little bit more than two years ago that there was an edict from our government that you couldn't worship God in public. And for eight weeks, we complied. I still am repentant over that one. But finally, we came back and said, no matter what. And that same government sent police officers to write down license plates to see who was in the parking lot. At some point, you have to figure out who you are. At some point, you've got to decide which God will you follow. And that if this is the word of God, and that was the tactics of the spirit war then, and it is the tactics of the spirit war in the tribulation, when there's a statue in Jerusalem and a false prophet and an antichrist, what is the tactic today? And who are we? You see, the Bible says he's the rock that makes them stumble. And there's a there's a rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. It's going to come. It's going to crush all the earthly kingdom. And it's going to grow and it'll cover the whole earth. It'll be the millennial reign of Christ. That's the good news. You know what the bad news is? He's the rock that makes them stumble. Because he came to stand on him. But if you don't stand on him, you'll trip over him. You'll fall. He'll be your fall instead of your foundation. He is the rock of our salvation. I'm going to ask Chad to come out for the invitation. I told you when I started today that I was going to ask the question in the end that I asked in the beginning. Here it is. How important is it for you to know the future? I preach a sermon like this, and I, I, I'm just going to be real transparent. I wonder how many people actually believe this. I do. I'm sorry. I just do. Actually believe that that. There's a rock that, that coming out of the clouds that's going to destroy all. Jesus is coming to destroy the kingdoms of men. And how many people are preparing yourself for that to make sure that you're a Daniel, that you're a Shadrach, you're a Meshach, you're an Abednego, you're an Esther, you're a Mordecai. They survive. How many believe this? I, I don't know when he's coming. And because I don't know when he's coming, I, I, I'm going to act like it's today. And I'm really sensitive to the idea that the government that worships false gods. And, and does anybody doubt that today? The government that's worshiping false gods is going to want the church to go along with them. And you better figure out who you are. You, you better decide. And you better decide in advance who you are. Not later. 
You going to be a Daniel? He's looking for some Daniels. So today, how important is it that you have, you know the future? And I'm not claiming to be anybody special. I just know that my calling is to warn you. My calling is that of a watchman. I, I have to warn you. I have to tell you. What you do with it will be totally on you. But I have to tell you. The rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, he's coming. First he will come for his bride. And after that will be the tribulation. And you'll either bow down to that statue during the tribulation or you will die. And then you'll take the mark. And if you take the mark, you're already dead because you're lost forever. But right now, we have this ability to choose, to believe what we choose to believe. So when I describe to you this, this Gentile kingdoms of men, I hope your hope is my hope. Where is that rock? And when is he coming? It's our hope. It separates us from the rest of the world. So we're going to sing this song. Um, it starts out with he's coming in the clouds. We're going to sing this song. And, and if today you need to make yourself right with this God, why don't you come to the altar and take care of that? Today you need to confess him, be baptized. Why don't you take care of that today while you've still got a chance to? And if today there's sin in your life and you haven't repented of that sin, why don't you fix that today and repent? Well, you got a chance. If today you got something against your brother, your neighbor, why don't you fix that today? Why don't you make yourself right with God today? Why, why not? The invitation's open. Let's stand.